Welcome, everyone, to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan. I'm pastor here. Just raise your hand if this is your first time. Oh, look at this. Awesome. Well, you're, uh, you're more than welcome here. I hope, uh, you know, we, we really want to create a space where people can encounter the real and living God. Um, one of the things that I was really thinking about this week a lot is, you know, we can't afford to exist on the rumors of what God is like, Right? We can't, we can't continue to sputter along on fumes of, of what people in the past have maybe hinted about what he's possibly like. We need that real and living awareness of who God is today and to have connection with him. And I think that's a huge motivation behind the series that we're in right now. It's called Form. And we're talking about taking the shape of Jesus. You know, a lot of times we talk about the things that we believe, um, but we really want to focus in on how we believe those things. How do we hold our beliefs in such a way that it actually shapes us and we become transformed and we look more and more like Jesus every day. That's what it means for us to be Christians, that we're little Christs, that we go out into the world as his hands and his feet. And the more that we submit ourselves to that process, the more we begin to look like Jesus. And so that's really what we've been focusing on the past several weeks. Um, And I'm going to be uh, speaking tonight on the idea of self-awareness. So let's just continue in prayer uh, to welcome the Spirit uh, to move freely in this space. So if you'll just pray with me, please. Um, Heavenly Father, we testify that you're here, that you're with us, that you're for us, you're not against us. Um, Lord, we just affirm that this is a place where we come with whatever feelings we've been feeling all week, whatever burdens we've been carrying, uh, and we lay all of those things at your feet, Lord. All of our guilt and our regret and our shame from the past, all of our anxiety of the future, we lay those things at your feet right now, Lord. We come before you as a people who are open-handed and open-hearted. So, Father, whatever you want to speak to each of us tonight, by all means do so. We're here and we're listening. Our ears are peaked for your voice. Because, Father, we want to leave this place looking more like your son Jesus, stepping even more into the identities that you have offered us since before time began. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever-pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I don't know if if, uh, when you came in uh, before we started service, we had some image over here of some time-lapse of crowds and traffic and moving through cities. And um, one of the top five jobs that I would take if I didn't have the one that I have now, uh, which is completely ridiculous, is that there's actually people out there that get paid to study crowds. Like they get this 30,000 foot view of how people move through a space and they engineer ways of helping them get through those spaces more efficiently. And I find that absolutely fascinating. One of my favorite things is to go to like, you know, one of the many theme parks that we have here. You're in a crowded space and there's like that one aisle next to the teacups and there's like three people standing in it having a conversation completely ignorant of the other 16 million people that are at the park that day. Like, I don't even get angry anymore when I see that. I just, I'm amazed. I'm like, that is amazing. That is absolutely amazing that you're just not aware of what's going on around you. Or how about, um, I drove out to St. Pete on Friday night uh, with a friend of mine. The person in the left lane on the highway who goes three miles under the speed limit, bless their little nippers. (laughs) What is that? You know, there's, there's something like 13 states that have 
laws on the books that you're not allowed to cruise in the left lane, and they're actually finally starting, uh, (laughs) amen, they're finally starting to uh, enforce those laws, you know, because believe it or not, our highway systems would actually work if we were all a little bit more self-aware. And I, I just find that fascinating, how we perceive ourselves in the world around us, um, and how we choose to interact with other people. And um, so that's kind of what I want us to really focus in on tonight is self-awareness. And this is kind of my, my thesis for you tonight. Self-awareness is one of the most profound gifts that God gives us. Self-awareness is a gift from God. And we're going to be looking at, um, at that in various degrees. But I think, you know, a lot of times in, in this series, we've been talking about self and self-care. And, you know, a lot of times uh, within church circles, we, we read scriptures that tell us that we're supposed to deny ourselves and take up our cross and all of this. And for some of us, that's been interpreted as you need to ignore yourself. You need to erase yourself out of the equation somehow. And so any kind of self-work or self-care is actually denied, and it becomes this kind of uh, false piety where you're trying to remove yourself out of the, uh, the equation. But I think actually when we do the work of self-care, we find that it actually frees us up to love in ever-increasing amounts. The reformer John Calvin said this, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Think about that for a second. Without knowledge of self, There is no knowledge of God. Because a huge, huge, huge part of why you and I are on this planet is because we are created in his image. And so when we encounter the image of God in other human beings, we encounter God himself, and we each, our presence in the world is a whisper of saying, this is what God is really like. And so I want us to focus in on this beautiful passage from Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verses 17 to 19. And so I love the, the book of Ephesians. I've said it before, but I wonder if, you know, if we, if we started with Ephesians as the beginning of our journey, how different it might be for so many of us. That, you know, Paul starts off with these crazy, wild, 30,000-foot heavenly perspective projections of who you and I are in God. They're almost like too good to be true. You know that feeling when you come across the gospel, it seems a little too good to be true. Just read Ephesians chapter 1. But he makes this shift. He kind of declaring, this is who you are, which I assume is not what they see in themselves. So I think it's very appropriate for us today. Uh, But Paul is saying, this is who you are. And then he kind of makes this pivot. He says, okay, so this is my prayer for you. So I want you to listen to this in this language of self-awareness. I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Okay, so even there in that first line, we have been given a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that God is enlightening something. He is revealing something. He's showing something. He goes on, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. I love that phrase, the eyes of your heart. So Paul's kind of implying something a little bit deeper than what we see on the surface. Not the eyes of our face, but the eyes of our heart. That they might be enlightened. That we might wake up. That we might begin to see things in a whole new way. And what does that that ability to become awake and become self-aware do? It, it, It enables us to begin to see real hope to which he has called us. One of the things that I love that several of you just prayed and prophesied over us is what what does real hope look like? Where do we actually place our trust? Where do we really 
put our identity and the solution for the brokenness of the world. And that it's not a flimsy hope, it's not a slogan that's just handed to us to make us feel better. This is real and genuine hope that, that we have been called to in Christ Jesus. That God is going to finish what he started. And he's going to bring the world back into accordance with the way that he always intended for it to be. And so God gives us the gift of self-awareness in the moment so that we can be part of his project in rescuing this world. Without no knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. And so we're enlightened so that we may know the hope to which we've been called, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, the awareness that we're now part of God's family, and his incomparably, um, incomparably great power for those who believe. What I want us to talk about tonight, kind of these three categories with a fourth subcategory. I want us to talk a little bit about ignorance. I want us to talk about self-consciousness and self-deceit. And then I want us to talk about what true self-awareness is. And a lot of times on the surface, we might think self-conscious and self-aware are synonyms. And for all intents and purposes, they are. But I want us to, to pull that language apart a little bit tonight in order to help us see what God is really doing in our lives as we're being transformed to look more like Jesus day to day. And so let's begin with self-ignorance. The writer David Foster Wallace uh, once gave this speech, and he told this parable. Two fish are swimming along in the ocean, and an older fish comes by and says, Hey, boys, how's the water? And he moves on, and one fish turns to the other and says, What the hell is water? Yeah, how many of us live in that kind of environment? Well, sometimes we need to pause and be reminded, hey, this is water. This is water. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about self-ignorance. It's this kind of inward-turned self that becomes oblivious to the world around us. It's a form of protection. Maybe we haven't really woken up to anything in particular, or maybe it's actually us retreating from the world. But we're actually born into this. You look at a baby and they're like this beautiful little bundle of pure ego. <laughs> Nothing else exists except the ego, and I guess technically the id if you want to get real Freudian about it. But it's this gradual growth out of this awareness that I am the only thing that exists. And before long, we begin to perceive the mother and then we begin to perceive the father and our family, and our awareness of the world continues to grow, but we begin the place in that, in that pure ego state. I wonder if this is maybe a better way for us to look at the idea of original sin uh, than some of the more legalistic terms that we've been handed, that we enter into a world completely unaware and ignorant of what's going around us. But the, the invitation that God gives us is to continually wake up day by day. And so self-ignorance, I think, is, is pretty uh, self-explanatory. I'm going to use self a lot. Maybe you can like count how many times I say that, and I'll give you a prize at the end or something. But let's move from self-ignorance to self-consciousness. Self-consciousness is fearful sensitivity to who we are in the context of other people. It's a fearful sensitivity. Self-consciousness is a reaction based out of fear. And so what happens is that we enter into a room and we begin to perceive other people and there are these very deep existential questions in all of us as human beings that we desperately want answered. Do I exist? Do I matter? Am I valuable? Am I loved? And when we live out of not knowing what our identity is and being affirmed by intimacy with God and with community, we enter into a space and everybody becomes a liability to us. And we intend to control the environment around us in order to answer those very essential questions. And I think it kind of happens in two different ways. You know, a lot in this series we've been talking about um, personality types. 
And it's really helpful for us to gain some of that language in order to understand how we've been crafted and what God's inviting us uh, to redeem and to realign. So when we enter into a space in a place of self-consciousness, I would say that perhaps the more introverted among us would see the people, would feel the burden and the pressure of all of these other people in the room, and what do we do? We sink away and we hide in the corner. We try to make ourselves invisible because we can't bear the burden of what other people might think of us, of how they might answer those questions about if we are enough or if we're loved or whatever that might be. And we feel the weight and the burden of all of the other people in the room bearing down on us. Now, perhaps the more extroverted among us would have a very different reaction when we're self-conscious. We enter into a space and we perceive what, what's going on and, and how are these people valuing me or seeing me. And instead of retreating, we actually press in deeper. You know there's a very finite difference between contributing to a conversation and inserting yourself into a conversation? That's what I'm talking about. And so the, the self-conscious extrovert will enter into a room and say, I'm here, I'm a real person, I exist, I deserve to be loved. And what happens, everyone else immediately backs away. Because when we're self-conscious and we're operating out of that place of fear, we sap up all of the energy in the room. We gobble up all the attention that we can in order to fill that void in our heart and to begin to answer some of those questions. But whether we're an introvert or an extrovert, it becomes this one-way flow of energy that the only reason that these people exist is in order to build me up, to define me, to give me some sort of an identity. And we end up objectifying the other people in the room. We objectify the people in our community. And sometimes we even treat God in this very same way. We objectify God when we seek to hide from him out of self-consciousness. Or we run to him in order to get something out of him. But the energy only tends to flow in one direction. And we're not able to be free and giving people when we live out of that fearful self-consciousness. I think Peter is a really good example of this in Scripture. That prior to the resurrection, Peter was constantly trying to reconcile his relationship with Jesus. And we, so we see it over and over again where he, he con is continually missing the mark. We get a little too much Peter or we don't get enough. I think about the story where Jesus is washing his disciples' feet and Peter says, no, 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 Lord, you couldn't possibly. I need to be washing your hands. And he says, look, Peter, Chill, relax, it's okay. And what does he say? Okay, well, if you're going to do my feet, then you need to wash my hands and my head. And he's like, Peter, seriously, slow down. And we see that time and again. He's always rushing in, and Peter seems so viciously conscious of how other people are perceiving him that he misses it. And it's not until after the crucifixion and the resurrection that we find this defeated and deflated Peter sitting in a boat, and Jesus comes to him and says, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know that I do. He says, then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Lord, you know that I do. Then feed my sheep. And it's so stunning to see Peter in those early days of, of ministry with Jesus and then to read these two fantastic letters we have from him, a man who is commanding in his presence but never insisting. He knows who he is, and he's able to write and lead out of that kind of authority. I think over the past year and a half, what many of us have observed in this election cycle is that fear is what is actually governing our country. I read a statistic recently that said 49% of Republicans are scared of Democrats. 
and 56% of Democrats are afraid of Republicans. Is this the kind of country that we want to be? Where we are literally afraid of half of the people that we're surrounded by. You see, that fear that comes out of that self-conscious mentality binds us up. We're not able to be free and giving people. We're not able to love. We can only protect. We can only hide. And we begin to erect these walls, these dividing walls of hostility that keep us from loving well because we don't know who we are at the core. And not only is that true for self-consciousness that it's a reaction out of fear, but self-deceit. And self-deceit is hiding from our true selves by trying to be someone else. We put on masks. We develop these defense mechanisms from a very early age in order to keep people from getting too close. We want them close, but we don't want them too close. But one of the things that I've been really meditating on recently is that if we value ourselves at all, which is to say, if we really love ourselves, for you and I to endeavor to know who we are and how God has wired us is infinitely more rewarding than trying to maintain some sort of a facade of who we'd like to be. And we move out of that impoverished understanding of our identity. You know, for some of us, when we walk into that room and that self-conscious mentality, we look around and say, what do I need to be in the eyes of all of these other people in order to appear successful? What do I need to be when I move in here in order to be lovable or to be seen as kind or to be seen as the ideal woman or the ideal man? What do I need to to be in order to enter into this room and to just really shake it up and get it going? You know, we all have different motivators in our personalities of why we would do that, but when we're self-conscious, we begin to wear these masks, we begin to develop these coping mechanisms in order to survive. When I was teaching high school, I saw this in really stark contrast, and my apology to my two sweet high schoolers that are in the front row. They're not mine, I mean, you know, they're not literally mine, they're Paul's, but... uh, (laughs) But how, how, what an amazing social experiment middle school and high school is and, and probably always will be, that you know, high schoolers are not exactly the most subtle of creatures in the way that they choose to be in the world. But I saw this a lot in, in my students in those years, that um, there were some that look around and they say, what's everybody else doing? How does everybody else talk? What's everybody else listening to? What are, they, what are they participating in? And I'm going to give myself over to the crowd in order to find a sense of belonging. But there was another kind of high schooler that that takes stock of what's going on in the crowd and what everybody else, how everybody else is talking and what music they're listening to and what they're doing and makes every effort to do exactly the opposite. And you know that kid in your high school. You may be, who was that kid in high school? Okay, okay, we've got a couple of those. But you see, in, in both of those scenarios, we have given over power. We have given over the right of God to define who we are, and we've offered it to the crowd. Whether it's we want to be like everybody else or we want to be different from everyone else. We're looking at the people around us and allowing them at the end of the day to define who we are. And I think the truth, the deeper truth in that is we're saying, I'm not okay with myself. I'm not okay with who I am. How many of you is that your high school experience? I'm not okay with who I am. I need to be someone else in order to be liked, in order to be successful, in order to be popular, in order to be weird, whatever it might be. We're saying, I'm not okay with myself. Because far earlier in our stories, somebody wasn't okay with who we are in our raw state. 
I think about Adam and Eve in the garden presented with this decision that you and I are presented with every single day. Do you want to eat from the tree of life, which is intimacy with God, which is allowing him to define who you are? Or do you want to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Do you want to, to, to have the responsibility of deciding what you think is right and wrong based on whatever limited experiences that you've had in your life? And so Adam and Eve, of course, ate from that second tree. And what happened? They were woken up, but not in the way that God designed for them to be. And they immediately became afraid. So when God comes walking through the garden to find them, they hide from him. You see, fear and self-consciousness lead us to shame. And what happens in that? Adam and Eve seek to cover over themselves. And God says, why were you hiding? And they said, we were afraid because we were naked. And God said, who told you you were naked? Who told you that you were missing something? Who told you that you weren't good enough the way that I created you? And how often do we do that every day? Perhaps it's not with fig leaves, but it's the masks that we wear in front of other people to, to convince other people, to convince God, and maybe even to convince ourselves that we're something else, that we're someone else. And fear leads to shame, and what does shame lead to when it becomes coming down to the root of what's happening in the story of Adam and Eve, Adam points to Eve and said, well, she did it first. She made me do it. One of the primary coping mechanisms is deflection, where we seek to point to somebody else is responsible for my issues. Somebody else is responsible for my sin. There's something out there that I need to name in order to justify me not looking inward. And so fear has us attempt to control the world outside and turn a blind eye from the authority that we have in our own inner world. Fear has us enter into that lie that if I, can, if I can make sense of the world out there, if I can control how it works, if I can control how it, it's understood, then maybe I can find some sort of solidarity. Maybe I can find safety. You know, we, many of us were raised to believe the simple gospel. Have you read that book? It's not particularly simple. But when we grow up looking for a simple gospel, we begin looking for a simple world. And we begin to, to, to believe very simple things about the way the world is, when in truth, it's actually very complicated. It's a very complex place. But we seek to define and control the world around us, all the while we're ignoring the things within ourselves that God has actually given us authority to do something about. There's this line where Jesus says those um, who seek to uh, protect their lives will lose it, but those who lose their lives for my sake will find them. And it's always been so fascinating to me, that kind of backwards logic of the kingdom of God. And kind of in this conversation of self-awareness, I realized something really powerful about that, that when we try to protect our lives, when we try to control the world out there at the expense of the world in here, we enter into a kind of living death where we're technically alive. There's a pulse but we're not actually growing. We're not actually becoming more like Christ. We're continuing to erect those walls and building our little castle of self-protection and projecting out into a world. All the problems are over there in order to save ourselves from having to look inward. And perhaps when Jesus says those who lose their lives for my sake are going to find them, what he's saying is allow the risk of letting me define who you are. Allow the risk of all of your coping mechanisms to fall down. All of your masks. Enter into the risk of letting me define who you are. Because what's the life that we're losing for Christ? It's the life of the ego. 
it's, it's the life where we're at the center stage and, and, and we're at the top of the pile and we have to protect everything we can. And it's a life of slavery. But when we begin to let that fall away, to lose that kind of life, in order to allow Jesus to define us, we enter into a new level of freedom. And so I believe that when we're, whether we're self-conscious or we live in a perpetual place of self-defeat, we end up hurting others and we hurt ourselves. More often than not, we sin out of our ignorance rather than our willful spite. Think about the last time that you hurt somebody. Maybe it was even today. I don't know. Did you do it on purpose? Did you sit down and you made a game plan? Okay, Jimmy really, you know, he cut me off and I was not happy about that and so here's my five-step program to get back at him. I bet you didn't. I bet you did something out of ignorance. It was a lack of self-awareness that you inadvertently hurt somebody else or you hurt other people. Sin is often the reaction of our uncultivated selves. This is what's so nuanced about understanding who we are, that the way that you and I have been crafted, it just is. It's not good or it's not bad. It just is. But it's begging cultivation as we become more aware to how God has crafted us. And it's amazing that it was ignorance that crucified Jesus. What does he say on the cross? Father God, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And so often that's how we hurt ourselves. That's the place where we hurt other people because we don't know what we're doing. Because we've fallen asleep. Because we're hiding. Because everything is about us and not about the people around us. There's this beautiful confessional prayer in the liturgical tradition. It's prayed every Sunday. It says, most merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. And there's so much power in that. I think it kind of covers all the bases, thought, word, and deed, the things we've done, the things we haven't done. Just get it all out there in one good go. But confessional prayer has this unique power for us to begin to become more open-handed and to recognize why we do the things that we do. We see this in 1 John chapter 1. The writer says this, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. This image of God as light is so appropriate to this conversation about self-awareness. As Paul was writing, I pray the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. Because light reveals things as they really are. When we live in the darkness, we cannot see who we have been created to be. We cannot see the things that God wants to do in us and through us. 
But when the light of God begins to shine in our lives, we can finally look around and then name the things that are in, previously in the darkness and begin to draw them out and to do business with them. I think, again, that self-consciousness breeds in us a fear and a shame that if I confess my sin to God, he's not going to love me. If I confess my sin to my community, they're going to reject me. And so we pretend like sin isn't an issue, and we continue to live in this self-deceit, and we continue to hurt people, and we hurt ourselves, and we wonder why. But there's an invitation in confession to believe that God is not here to shame us. God is not here to reject us, but to welcome us into deeper relationship with him. And so the light shines in the darkness so that we can begin to see our lives the way that they really are and do business with the things that are hiding underneath the various couches and beds and all of these places that dust bunnies and all this stuff gets into. The fellowship that we have with God, that deep level connection, includes confession. It includes an open-handedness before God and before other people because that's the only way that we're really going to grow. And we step out of this living death and we step into real life. Self-awareness is the beginning of the journey to freedom. This week I was trying to find a passage where Jesus is particularly self-aware, which is kind of a fool's errand. (laughs) And I read most of the Gospel of John. And I, I love all the Gospels for various reasons, but I really love the writings of John because I think he is really keyed in on this idea that Jesus was fully self-aware. And time and again in what Jesus says and the way that Jesus acts, we see what it looks like when we're fully self-aware. You realize that Jesus didn't have any coping mechanisms. Jesus didn't defer. Jesus didn't bury his his feelings deep down inside and crush them with his brain. Jesus didn't put on a face to get other people to like him. Jesus didn't enter into space and go, what do these people need me to be in order to be successful? What do I need to be here in order to be loved? Jesus was not chaotic like that. Jesus was a man of peace who was able to enter into a space and enter into this real relationship with the people around him. I think that's what it means for him to be innocent and pure. And he was so connected to God and he loved others so freely that he gave us this new vision of what it means to be human in God's way. And so self-consciousness and self-deceit lead us to self-condemnation, but self-awareness leads us to compassion. And I'm so keyed into this idea that being Christ-like isn't just about acting like Jesus and doing the things that Jesus did. It's also being in the world with the same level of power and authority that Jesus had, which only comes out of being self-aware. Having that same kind of connectedness to God, that Jesus who says, I only do and say the things that I see my Father doing and saying. And being able to maneuver through the world, being all of these different kinds of relationships with that level of togetherness. So let's really key in then on what self-awareness is. Self-awareness is the embrace of the radiant flow of energy in a community. How's that for a hippie conversation right there? So what, <laughs> I've been reading a lot of Richard Rohr recently, so that's why, that's why that sounds the way it does. But if in self-consciousness and self-deceit, the energy in the room only flows one way, that I objectify all of you for my own personal benefit and to begin to answer those deep existential questions within myself. Um, Self-awareness 
is to choose to enter into this circuit, this flowing awareness of the energy between myself and other people. That it becomes a free relationship where I'm giving and I'm receiving, where I celebrate the other as I am entrusted onto them. I think my definition now for trust is that trust is the freedom from being concerned about whether or not I will get the things that I desire. And it gives me free freedom to love conditionally. When we don't trust people, we love them conditionally. There's always an angle because we're looking to get something out of them. But when we trust somebody, there is a freedom. I know that I'm going to receive what I want from you. I don't need to beg for it. And so it frees me up to love you unconditionally. And so for the Christian, self-awareness is really spirit awareness. And it's collective awareness. I love the beautiful irony that one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. God gives us the gift of self-control because it's not really about self-control. It's about the power of God within us to help us to to craft ourselves to be more like Him. And so self-awareness is this level of spirit awareness and collective awareness. Again, John's depiction of Jesus, the language that Jesus always used and he was reminding his his, uh, disciples of is, I am in you and you are in me and we are in God. It's about this connectedness. And there's this deep level of acceptance for self, acceptance of others, and acceptance of God. It's the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. And for those of you that are keeping tabs at home on your Ryan sermon bingo card, yes, there's your Hebrew word for the day. But not only are we called to an external shalom, that we have peace and harmony with those around us, but we have an internal shalom. That we accept ourselves, that we have peace within ourselves, that all the little bits of who you are that have been shattered by the brokenness of the world are being mended in God and you're able to accept yourself. I think this is what's so powerful about this idea of acceptance of self. God wastes nothing of our personalities, but he redeems everything. God wastes nothing. You know, in the story of Noah, after the flood, God makes this promise, I will never come again to destroy the world. And so far, he's held up his promise. (laughs) We'll see. Uh, I'm sorry, was that too political? I don't know. Whatever. Kingdom. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. But you realize it's a lot easier to scrap something and start all over again than it is to redeem something. It's a lot easier. But the reward through redemption is far greater. And that's what God is in the business of doing, both globally and personally, is entering into redemption. And what is redemption? Redemption is giving new value to something that is already present. It's giving new value. It's not scrapping something. It's not throwing it on the heap. It's renewing it and restoring it and giving it new purpose and new uh, definition. Some of the deepest shames in my life have been because somebody has told me that part of my personality isn't supposed to be there. For years, people would say to me, oh, you're just overthinking this. Oh, well, you have an intellectual faith. How many of you grew up hearing, like, the, you know, the, what is it, the biggest distance is between the head and the heart or something? Like, and it's like, it's all about, our faith is all about the heart. And it's like, I, what Bible are you reading? And I used to feel such shame for being smart and for thinking. Because what it was being told to me was, oh, you need to stop thinking. You need to feel your way through life. That's the way that it works. And it disrupted this shalom within myself between my mind and my heart. And I had deep shame that I like to think about things, 
that I have a mind. And it took a lot of inner work with the Lord to say, no, 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 everything belongs. That's exactly what there is there. Now, does my thought process need to be redeemed? Oh, yes, it does. (laughs) Ask anybody that's close to me. But it doesn't need to be scrapped. How about this one? What about our sexuality? How many times have we been told in some way we're not supposed to be sexual beings? That's a part of us that we need to feel shame of. That's a pariah. It's some sort of appendage that needs to be cut off and thrown into the fire. Several years ago, I was on mission in Poland, and I was taking confession from a young guy there. And he was, he was struggling uh, with pornography. And he said, you know, my father is an alcoholic. And I believe that he could stop drinking. He could kind of get that out of his world, and eventually he would stop being an alcoholic. He said, but my pain is that I can't stop being a sexual being. I can't pretend that that doesn't exist. I can't pretend that that's not part of me. I think for so many of us, we've been brought up in a world that says that you're not allowed to be sexual. You're not allowed to have that part of you, so you have to diminish it and, 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 and hide it and put it away in the closet because it's not good enough. It's not part of God's plan. But if we truly believe in redemption, we truly believe that God has created us exactly as he intended, but those pieces of who we are bear redemption, then we have to hand over to God that we are sexual beings and we are intellectual beings, and we are emotional beings, and we are moral beings. All of these little bits of who you and I are, everything belongs. Everything you are belongs. But it bears being cultivated and redeemed by God. So much of how you see the world is not a mistake. So much of the way that you see the world is not a phase, it's not a deficiency, it's part of how you've been crafted. It's part of the way that God has created you to step out into the world and to be the authentic representation of his character. And every once in a while, the the way you see the world and the way you choose to be in the world, yes, it begs redemption and cultivation but it belongs, and it's valuable, and it's needed. Last week, Cole said, personality is never an excuse to not embody the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And as you and I come into contact with who we are, that's not the end of the journey, but just the beginning, that we begin to hand those things over to God and to see what he's going to do with them. Because ultimately, self-awareness helps us to love and to be loved, and that love transforms us. You see, self-awareness requires a level of humility and defenselessness to let go of all of our facades and our masks and our coping mechanisms, to come before God and come before one another open-handed. The 17th century writer Thomas Akempis said, a humble self-knowledge is a surer way to God than a search after deep learning. One of the things that as I've been on this journey of of working through the Enneagram that I've been so enamored with is so much of us being self-aware is learning how to get out of our own way so that we can love God and love the way that we've been created. How often have you been frustrated with yourself because you've gotten in your own way and you're not able to love the way that you know you're called to be loved? Again, that's that place. It's more out of ignorance. It's more out of a self-hatred. It's more out of shame 
that we're not able to love, but when we begin to gain the language for that, when we hand those things over to the Lord for redemption, he enables us to get out of our own way so that we can love freely. I want to read a passage from Galatians chapter 6. Janae brought this to mind on Thursday, and she read it out of the message, and it took me a moment to even figure out what passage it was, and I like to think I know the Bible decently well. Um, But I went back and looked at it in the NIV, and it's so good, but I love the way that Eugene Peterson has phrased this. He says this in Galatians 6, make a careful exploration of who you are, and the work that you've been given. So there's your, make a careful exploration of your identity and your purpose. And those are two separate things. You are not what you do, but what you do matters. So make a careful exploration of who you are and the work that you've been given. And then sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself. I think pride so often is a facade. Pride is a mask that we wear to protect ourselves from other people. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself to other people. When we're self-conscious, all we do all day is say, she's got more than me. He's more talented than I am. They can jump faster or whatever. Don't compare yourself to other people. Jump faster? That's not a thing. (laughs) Good grief. Jump higher, run faster. Somebody get me a Gatorade. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself with others. Now listen, each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. Each of you has a responsibility to the inner world that God has established in you to begin to cultivate it, to to tend to it, to stir it up, and to lead yourself into health. That's what I love so much about recently I've done the Enneagram, and I know many of you have done Enneagram, or you've done Myers-Briggs, or there's love languages, there's all these different tests out there, and they're great but they're just diagnostic tools. They don't fix us, but they give us the language to be able to move forward, to see our personalities for what they are, and then to open ourselves to God for a kind of transformation. But the beauty of that process of self-awareness is that day by day, we begin to reveal a little bit more of Christ's character than the day before. And we begin to hold ourselves in the world the way that Christ did. That we don't have this unhealthy necessity for, for community but we're able to step into deeper health. And so how do we become more self-aware? I just want to give you four little lines to kind of reflect on uh, throughout this week. How do we become more self-aware? First of all, we need to learn to ask the right questions. Anybody that knows me knows that I love when people start asking questions. Oh, it's my favorite thing in the world. Because I think when we stop asking questions, we die. Okay? When we think that we've got it figured out, we die. We enter into that living death. One of the things that's been so amazing this week is seeing how people are beginning to ask questions, that assumptions are being broken up and challenged and how we thought the way the world works and who's on our side and who's not and all these things. And people are finally beginning to ask the right questions. And I believe, and I'm prophesying right now, the church is finally going to start waking up and going, okay, regardless of who wins, we need to step up and start being who God's called us to be. Okay, we have a job to do. And I've said this before, when we begin to outsource the job of the church to the government and expect them to do our job for us, we're never gonna see the results that we desire. 
But when we begin to enact the kingdom, when we begin to have the divine imagination to go out and to say, God, who would you have me be today? What would you have me do? What are we called to together? When we put our energy into that kind of divine creativity, we see heaven come to earth. And so we need to learn to ask the right questions of the Lord, as I spoke about earlier, having that kind of humility and courage, like the psalmist who says, Lord, show me my heart and reveal to me my anxieties. What do you see? We need to have that kind of courage and open-handedness before the Lord. But we also need to have that kind of courage to come to our community and begin to ask the right questions. Several months ago, I was with some friends and we were just talking about life and, and the conversation kind of slowly shifted to this question, which I think is the most terrifying question we can ask in community. What do you see in me? How do you see? I already see somebody's cringing. What do you see? See, just by asking that question, we've immediately become open-handed and we have to be defenseless. And it was such a beautiful and intentional conversation to have with some very close friends whom I trust because it was so affirming in many of my best and most beautiful qualities, but it was also really convicting for me to see some of my blind spots and my triggers. But if it's people that I trust, again, there's a level of freedom to receive that in and allow it to become part of my process. So we need to learn to ask the right questions of the Lord and in community. Secondly, healthy solitude leads to healthy community. Healthy solitude leads to healthy community. Now, solitude is very different than loneliness. You are just as self-conscious when you're lonely as when you're in a room with other people. And I think many of us know that experience of sitting by ourselves and we're absolutely terrified. We're frozen up because we don't know who we are if we're not interacting with other people. And that's what loneliness is. But when we're able to enter into genuine solitude, where it's just us and the Lord, we're not reading any books, we're not listening to any worship albums, we're not listening to any podcasts, but we're genuinely in solitude with the Lord. There's no tasks to accomplish, there's no list of to-dos, there's no one to try to convince that we've got it all together. When we're able to be in that kind of solitude with the Lord, we want to see what kind of questions begin to raise up within us. We have to learn who we are when it's just us and God. It's the only way that we're able to step into community and that community is a gift and not a burden. How many of you feel that where sometimes community is a burden? It raises more anxiety rather than being a healing space. Is it because you're handing over power to other people to define you when that's God's right? And so when we learn to live in healthy solitude, we learn to live in healthy community. Third, gain language for how you're wired. Please, 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 for the love of God, gain some language, people. <laughs> Learn to understand yourself so that you can begin to evaluate your behavior. As I mentioned before, there's the Enneagram and Myers-Briggs and Love Languages and Strengths Finders, and all of these things are really great. We're going to be posting some links later on the week on our social media. But when we gain language for the way that we operate, when we're the uncultivated self, when we're the ignorant self, it begs us to begin to ask those right questions so that we can begin to grow. And also to affirm, what does it look like when we are healthy? What's the language that I need to be able to identify those moments when I am really healthy? And this is so important when it comes to personality types. Do not let the language box you in. Do not let a number, do not let four letters, do not let a list, do not let a Harry Potter, which school do you actually fit in? Don't let that box you in. Don't let that box you in. 
let that language reveal to you the box that you're already in so that you can learn how to get out of it. And finally, let yourself hope for growth. When we're self-conscious, we don't want things to change. We want to preserve things as they are in this moment, and we don't want anyone to ask us any questions, thank you very much, because I'm trying to figure it out on myself. And we become hopeless, that it's not going to get better. But when the eyes of our hearts are enlightened, as Paul prays over all of us, we recognize the hope to which we're really called, that we will change, and we will grow, and we'll become more than who we are right now. And maybe you don't know what that's going to look like. Maybe you don't know who you're going to become if you enter into this process of allowing God to grow you, to bring you to self-awareness. But that brings us down to that most beautiful and foundational question, how much do I trust God? We don't know what the promised land looks like for each of us as individuals. But if we trust that God is good, we know by definition wherever he leads us is going to be good. And we trust him today to lead us there tomorrow. And so we have to learn to let ourselves hope for growth. Even though sometimes it feels awkward or embarrassing or humiliation, that's just your ego nipping you in the bud. Don't worry about it. It's okay. God's not here to shame you or cause you to feel regret or guilt. And so let's stand and we're going to worship God. But what we're going to do, I'm going to ask... Uh, I'm going to ask Holy Spirit just to give, and we're going to give him freedom to move in this room. And even as we're worshiping God, um, I want you guys to be open to let the Holy Spirit give you some language for who you are. And your best and most beautiful characteristics, and also some of the, the bits of your uncultivated self where you keep hitting a wall, or you're hurting other people, or maybe you're hurting yourself. But trust in it. Trust that the Spirit will come to you and will say the same words that he's spoken over millennia. Do not be afraid, for I am with you always. And so, Heavenly Father, we testify once again that you are here and you're with us and you're for us. Holy Spirit, we welcome you to move in us and through us. Begin to give us language for how you've created us, Lord. That everything that we are actually belongs, but it does bear cultivation and redemption. Lord, as the psalmist prays, show us our hearts, reveal to us our anxieties, reveal to us our triggers and our fears so we can do business with them and we can learn to be free and giving people who become more Christ-like day by day. Father, I thank you for this process that you take us on. I thank you for this journey that we don't know what tomorrow's going to look like, but we know that when you're with us, everything will be okay. So, Father, we just give you permission to move in this space. In the strong name of Jesus, amen.